in C.S. Lewis's The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, there was a well-known exchange between a little girl named Lucy and a sweet couple about the Christ figure of the story, Aslan, the lion. You might be familiar with this exchange if you're familiar with The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe or the Chronicles of Narnia. Asking of Aslan, Lucy says, is, is he a man? Asked Lucy. Aslan a man? Said Mr. Beaver sternly. No, Aslan is a lion. The lion. The great lion. Is he quite safe? I shall feel rather nervous about meeting a lion. That you will, dearie. And make no mistake, said Mrs. Beaver. If there's any who can appear before Aslan without their knees knocking, they're either braver than, braver than most or else just silly. Then he isn't safe, said Lucy. Safe, said Mr. Beaver. Don't you hear what Mrs. Beaver tells you? Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe, but he's good. He's the king, I tell you. This morning, we're going to broaden our horizon as far as we can. And we are going to see the future glory of Jesus in a manner that may have you wondering whether or not he is safe. But in so doing, you will find that he is not safe as perhaps you might be inclined to imagine safe. But you will find that he is good. And that his people can find and taste his goodness and, yes, safety in his steadfast love. What I want to argue for you from our passage this morning, what I want to hold up for you, for us to see, is that the future glory of Jesus stretches from eternal blessing for his people to total judgment for those who oppose him. And we must live by His steadfast love. Let me say that again. The future glory of Jesus stretches from eternal blessing to His people all the way to total judgment for those who would oppose Him. And we, as His church, must live by His steadfast love. First, let's see eternal blessing. Let's see comfort that is promised to his people. In Isaiah chapter 62, verses 8 to 12, Isaiah is carefully, patiently walking the people of God through an explanation of what their future held because of the work of the anointed one, the chosen servant of the Lord, whom we know to be King Jesus. And we know that the promised future of the people of Zion that we see prophesied here is a future that is promised to all of us who belong to Jesus. In verses 8 and 9, God promises the people of Zion that their food, their, their crops, their wine would no longer be pillaged by bands of outside raiders. Instead, the people of Zion would eat and drink in perfect peace. Sweet food would fill their mouths, but the praise of their redeeming God is what would fill their hearts. You see that in verses 8 and 9 there in chapter 62. Christian, did you know that God is serious about and totally resolved to accomplish your 
absolute peace and everlasting joy. That is not a byproduct of the work that He is doing. It is at the core of all that He is doing in revealing the glory of the resurrected Jesus to us and inviting us to come to Him. Because He knows, and His Word shows us, that our greatest good, our absolute peace, our total joy is grounded in Him. And though we taste it in this life, little samples at the table, we will feast on the glory and the goodness of Jesus in His presence for eternity. He does not deal in wishful thinking, nor does God deal in vague metaphorical promises that are always actually weaker than the actual promise. The hope of the Christian life is not like an interesting product that you see on TV that you say, huh, that's fascinating, and you purchase it, but then it is delivered, and it does not work, or it breaks down within, a mo- within just a few moments, and you find that this as-seen-on-TV item has been oversold and under-delivered. The Christian life is one where it is not oversold and under-delivered. It is under-believed and doubted to our own detriment. So let me ask you, where do you need peace? None of us are in this room where the people of Judah, before uh, they were exiled out of their homeland and into Babylon, where where they would regularly have have raiders that were more powerful than them that would come in and raid their crops and raid their vineyards and, 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 and pillage their cities. We don't deal with that in our day and age. Nonetheless, there is the question of where do you need peace? The question is not, do you need peace? The question is, where and what and why and how do you need peace in your heart this day? What are the areas of your life and the groanings of your heart in which it seems as if the living water of Jesus cannot seem to quite flow uphill towards those parched shelves of your heart and of your hope? Where is that for you? The danger that we face as Christians is not that we will believe too much in the faithfulness of God. It is not that we will believe too much that the future promises of comfort that He gives to His people are sure. It's that we we will believe them too little. It's that we will believe too small. Too much in a lackluster fashion. We will turn our heads in disinterest as the nail-pierced hands seek to offer us the blessings of fellowship and relationship with our God. We see in verses 8 and 9, this promise of food and drink will not be robbed from Zion, but she will enjoy it in the sanctuary of the Lord. That's telling you and me that we will enjoy absolute fullness of life, never to be disrupted, never to be disjointed in the perfect presence of God. And I say this to you halfway jokingly about how congested I am with allergies and pollen, but I say this also seriously so that we can get an idea of the depth and the reach and the, and the, and the, and, and the glories of the King Jesus in His presence. Did you know that you will never even sneeze in the presence of King Jesus? You will never wake up with a sore throat in the presence of King Jesus. 
You will never feel even a groan of uncertainty of God's love for you and of your perfect peace when you are around His throne. This is the hope that we hang on to. And most importantly, you will never worry whether you are too far gone from the love of King Jesus to reach. For you will be enveloped in His glory and in His grace. And the invitation before us is laid out in verses 10 to 12. It reads, follow along as I read, go, go through, go through the gates, prepare the way for the people, build up, build up the highway, clear it of stones, lift up a signal over the peoples. Behold, the Lord has proclaimed to the end of the earth, say to the daughter of Zion, behold, your salvation comes, behold, his reward is with him and his recompense before him. And they shall be called the holy people, the redeemed of the Lord, and you shall be called sought out a city not forsaken. Do you see what is happening here? The Lord is calling for, metaphorically here, an incredible construction project. The greatest public works project mankind and humanity and and all of creation has ever known. He's calling for the roads to be lifted up, smoothed out, the, the, the walls and the barriers to be knocked down. For I am building a highway where the peoples of the earth, all who will come to me through Christ, can come and enjoy my presence and find in me glory and joy everlasting. The imagery here is of a city once in rubble, now reborn. A city once forsaken and despised, now made new and shining in spectacular glory. And this is a city that is not just one city on a map. This is a city to which actually all of history is journeying towards this city. There is not the city of God and then the city of of, of, of other beings or other entities or for those who God isn't really their thing, then they can avoid it. They can can go to the next exit and try another off-ramp. No, all of these journey towards and find their total destination in the city of God and the road is paved by His grace that is available to all who will come to Him. I cannot help but chuckle at this imagery of a roadway smoothed and built up made smooth by the supernatural work of God. My heart smiled as I thought there are no potholes that jump out and wreck your alignment on the highway to the celestial city of our God. How many of you have recently driven through the rotary at the driftway since it was repaved? Isn't that just wonderful? I haven't done it yet, but sometimes I'm tempted to go three or four circles around just to get a full enjoyment of it. Oh, it's so smooth. And then you look in the island in the middle. The flowers and the plants look so beautiful. Next time you drive through that rotary and recount how much better it is than just even a few weeks ago, be reminded of the ultimate triumph of God's grace towards you. And know that the promises of God's grace are more sure than the footing of a smoothed over roadway. It is not wishful thinking. The gospel is not a message big on superlatives, but little on power. Jesus Christ is preparing a place for us where His church will be gathered from the ends of the earth to come and enjoy His great grace. And the invitation before all of us is the question, do we believe it? The question before us, the way we answer whether or not we believe it, is to ask ourselves now, are we journeying down this road? 
Is grace the anthem of our hearts? Or the get-out-of-jail-free card that we play? Is King Jesus triumphant over our sin and triumphant in His rule over us, beckoning us to trust Him with our lives? Not just the parts of our lives that we easily want to surrender to Him, but the parts of our lives that we feel as if we might not be able to trust Him with it. Is He the, the source of our refuge and strength with the totality of our lives? I asked a few moments ago, where do you need peace in your life, in your heart? Perhaps the next question would be, where are you struggling to give burdens, concerns, worries over to King Jesus, our King of grace and Lord of glory? I imagine the answers to these questions. Where do you need peace and where are you struggling to give these over to the hand of King Jesus? I imagine there's great overlap in our hearts with the answers to these questions. He is both the reward, anything that would hinder us from trusting Jesus and saying to Him, I don't have perfect faith, but I have a perfect Savior. And so King Jesus, take this small measure of faith that I do have and help me to trust You, to guide me and lead me in this life, in this month, in this week, in this day, in this hour. Heaven is not endless 70 degree days and golf and fishing and a nice day at the beach. It is not even a reunion with long lost loved ones and the absence of hardship. It's the absolute pleasure of the people of God and nothing less than God Himself. Heaven is the total unending enjoyment of the grace of God purchased by the Son of God with His own blood according to the plan of God as He paves the road towards your heart's greatest needs in Himself. In that heavenly city, we will stand as if looking out over the Grand Canyon and we will see as far as our eyes can reach and all that we will see is grace upon grace upon grace. The redeemed of the Lord will have a perfect secure home bought and built by Christ. And where is the on-ramp towards this heavenly journey? Where do I get on this road? In His church. With His people. Trusting, hoping, believing, praying, walking, living together by grace. In the church, we throw open the doors and invite others to join us on this road to perfect peace, walking with hearts of humility, buoyed by the joy of the resurrected King Jesus. And as verse 12 says us, tells us, they shall be called the holy people, the redeemed of the Lord, and you shall be called sought out, a city not forsaken. And yet as we gaze upon the eternal city of our King, and the promised comfort that we hold to as His people, we cannot help but now turn around. And that's what Isaiah forces us to do. In chapter 63, verses 1-6, to we see another aspect of the future glory of Jesus. For as beautiful as our heavenly home will be, this imagery may be troublesome, disconcerting, perhaps even objectionable. Yet we must look at it because it is in God's Word and the road to heaven is paved with trust in God whose thoughts are higher than ours and who we know that when we object to or are concerned with what He is saying, the problem lies not with Him, but with us. And so as we saw first, 
The promise of comfort for the people of God. Next we see, secondly, in chapter 63, verses 1-6, to the promise of wrath against the unrepentant world. As we make our way through these concluding sections of Isaiah, what we find is the newspapers of that future day are thrown wide open. The story from all accounts, all perspectives, not just the good news, but all the news. New citizens populate the kingdom of Christ, but we see a future event that tells not only of the King of Jesus reigning over His people, but we see the totality of the story demands us to see the perfect, right, just wrath of King Jesus upon the unrepentant world. Follow along as I read verses 1-6. through Who is this who comes from Edom? Is crimsoned in crimson garments from Basra? He who is splendid in his apparel, marching in the greatness of his strength. It is I, speaking in righteousness, mighty to save. Why is your apparel red, and your garments like his who tread the winepress? I have trodden the winepress alone, and from the peoples no one was with me. I trod them in my anger and trampled them in my wrath. Their lifeblood spattered on my garments and stained all my apparel, for the day of vengeance was in my heart, and my year of redemption had come. I looked, but there was no one to help. I was appalled, but there was no one to uphold. So my own arm brought me salvation, and my wrath upheld me. I trampled down the peoples in my anger. I made them drunk in my wrath, and I poured out their lifeblood on the earth. You see two locations mentioned in verse 1, Edom and Basra. Edom was a country south of Israel, and Basra was the capital of that country. Edom is known as a perennial opponent of God's people, a continued adversary, a rival. This dated all the way back to the enmity between Jacob and Esau, which you may be familiar with from the book of Genesis. Esau founded Edom, and now in Isaiah's day, Edom has become an image or a symbol of all opposition to God and His people. The anger, the malice, the violence enacted against God's people and in rebellion against God Himself, this represents humanity not at its best, but at its worst. With no interest in God and hearts sinfully turned in absolute opposition to Him. And the imagery here, make no mistake, is of Jesus walking back from Eden with blood-stained garments having brought total and complete wrath upon those who rejected Him. Do you see this? This Jesus is not the one that we picture when we think of Jesus. You may wonder, why would God allow or why would God do this? Stephen, if this is what you're saying, if this is what Isaiah shows us, well, this doesn't make sense if we're all neutral entities just navigating life and the world and hey, God works for some, but not for others. And, 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 you know, to each his own. But what we find here is that there's two locations here. There's either Edom, or there's those who are journeying towards the celestial city of God because they have come to faith in God through Jesus Christ. That's it. There's one of two ways. 
Unless we think that this is something that is just born in the dark, murky, rarely visited pages of, of the end of an Old Testament prophet. There's shocking similar language in Revelation 19. Listen to it as I read. The Apostle John, writing in Revelation 19, beginning in verse 11, says, Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True. And in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems. And he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. And on his robe and on his thigh, he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Now, when we read things like this, I'll be honest, you read things like the future coming judgment of Jesus on the world. You read it, you're like, oh, I don't know what to make of this. Believe you me, I don't read texts like this in my preparation during the week and say, oh, okay, well, okay, you know, okay, there's the outline. And yeah, yeah. You know, you, you read it and you, you take a step back and you're, and you're sober, you're, 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 you straighten yourself up. You say, what is happening here? And truth be told, there are times in which you, you wrestle over this hand of the judgment of God. And if we're being totally honest, you read this, you say, God's judgment saying that all people on the face of the earth are sinners. And, 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 and they, they need redemption in some way. Or this judgment rests upon them. And you read that and you say, is that, that really true? God, does it really have to be that way? Is there another way? Is there another avenue? But then I pause. And the only way that this makes sense to me, I start to think on it, but then I realize it starts to make total, complete, absolute sense. And that is this. This King Jesus who we see walking out of Edom literally with blood-stained garments having brought judgment upon those who opposed His people and who rebelled against His name. He is walking out of Edom after He walked to a cross. And the truth of the matter is what the Bible holds before us that we might first find objectionable is this idea of the wrath of God upon sin and what it means for us as it calls all of us sinners against God. But as I wrestle with that idea of is, is our sin that bad that this kind of judgment must come? I say to myself, it must be that bad that the Son of God would come and give His life as a bloody ransom, dying a death that He did not deserve. 
in order to rescue us from that wrath. And so it's one of these things that we read it and we literally kind of maybe like, like get a lump in our throat and say, this is serious matter. And to which we, we, our, our response cannot be, well, this is serious or this is big, so I, I'm going to hold that at its distance. No, we look it square in the eye, dear church, and we say to ourselves, that wrath that was due to me was endured by Christ. And so I'm going to take the Word of God and what it says about the seriousness of my rebellion against God and my sin. I'm going to take it serious enough that I don't dismiss such language, such claims, such imagery. But I rejoice in the cross of Christ and I cling to my Savior who has atoned for my sins that deserve His judgment. And I'm going to resolve that I'm going to earnestly, earnestly let this spur me on towards evangelism. Urging others to come to Christ. To look upon Him and find grace for their sin. God is not a malicious, evil tyrant enacting injustice upon the world. We share in hopes of persuading people condemned by their own sin, their own rebellion against God, to repent from that rebellion and come from the darkness and into the light. And I even invite you today, if you are with us today, you say, I, I don't know that I've ever come to Christ. I maybe have come to church, but, but is my life surrendered to Christ? Have I acknowledged that I am a sinner against Him and against God, and that it was my sins that needed atonement on the cross? I invite you, come to Him. Come to Him and escape this judgment, and come to Him and find grace where He uh, 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 endured the judgment of God upon your sin. Hear this warning that the next coming of Jesus will not be coming to take us all by the hand and sing Kumbaya. It will be a coming where He will bring judgment upon those to whom it is deserved. And that is all who are not looking upon Him in faith. I know this is a big truth. And I know these are weighty words. But I hope you're seeing these are not Stephen's words. These are God's words. And so, if you're going to wrestle with this, I urge you to wrestle with the Word of God. And I would love to talk with you about this. If you have questions about this or want to talk about it further, feel free to grab me after the service. Or feel free, my email is on the bulletin. Feel free to shoot me an email. There is nothing more serious that you could talk about or investigate in your own life and give consideration to. Brothers and sisters, hear this though as a warning, but also as a consolation. Take heart that evil in this world will meet its match. Take heart that 
drug cartels, sex traffickers, heartless abusers of the innocent and the weak. Those who prey upon the vulnerable. Those who harm precious children. Those who act in selfish, obscene evil. They will meet their match in King Jesus. The judgment and wrath of God does not fit in a world where there are no moral absolutes and everything is relative. But where we see evil and we understand the unmasking of human depravity in the world around us, and even where we are honest and willing to engage with and to reflect upon the human depravity within us, it makes sense and it is right, and it will either do one of two things. It will either harden, serve to you to harden your heart all the more and say, I don't believe this God. I don't need this. He's out of touch with our day. Or you'll see it. You'll be frozen in your tracks. And you will fall at the foot of the cross and rejoice in Christ who endured this wrath for you. So a comfort and a warning. And now a question of what do we do with this? Is the message here from this point forward, okay, so now what's my application? What do I do with this? Is the message, well, go be a better person. Try not to be so evil. No. The message is run to the steadfast love of God. Look at how, look at the, the, the transition here between verses 6 and 7 is astonishing. Jesus saying, I, in verse 6, I trampled down the peoples in my anger. I made them drunk in my wrath and I poured out their lifeblood on the earth. It's hard to get a lot more stark and serious and, and severe than that, right? And now look at how the people of God respond in verse 7. They say, I will recount the steadfast love of the Lord, the praises of the Lord, according to all that the Lord has granted us, and the great goodness to the house of Israel that He has granted them according to His compassion, according to the abundance of His steadfast love. The message, the response, the application of this is not go be a better person. The message is to take ourselves and our sins seriously and then run to the steadfast love of God. Cling ever so closely to the love that has grabbed hold of you. I love it. The people of Zion, what do they do in response to this? They rejoice in God's love to them. Because they know it's their only hope. 
But they know it not in the sense of they're watching a storm of the wrath of God swirling around them and they're hoping no trees fall on them. They're hoping their roof withholds. No, they're watching the storm and they're sitting there calmly, peacefully, without a concern because they know the promises of their God can stand. And how do they know they can stand? Because they've already passed the test. He has already become their Savior, in verse 8 says. In verse 9, it talks about in their affliction, He was afflicted. The angel of His presence saved them. And it's starting to, to recount the rescuing work of God towards His people. And get this, all the way from Him bringing them out of Egypt. You know, the plagues, the, the Passover, the crossing the Red Sea, all of that. But then also, not just bringing them out of Egypt, but then their wilderness wanderings. They had... 40 years where they're just wandering around the wilderness because of their sinfulness and their hardness of heart and their refusal to believe the promises of God for their good. And so they just wandered around the wilderness until they inherited the promised land. Verse 10 talks about how they rebelled. They grieved His Holy Spirit. And He judged them. He disciplined them as their Lord. But then He also remembered His faithfulness to them and His people. He talks about in verse 11, where is he who brought them up out of the sea with the shepherds of his flock? Where is he who put in the midst of them his Holy Spirit? And then look at, look at the second part of verse 12. I want you to see this. So in verse 11, he talks about God who brought them up out of the sea. That's talking about them crossing the Red Sea. In verse 12, it talks about God who, in the second part of it, who divided the waters before them to make for himself an everlasting name. These are not the same events. The second one, dividing the waters, is a second time God, where He didn't part the Red Sea, but He parted the Jordan River, and they crossed through. After generation of hard-hearted stubbornness against God and sinful rebellion against Him, His steadfast love still provided a way for them through. And so the message imagery here for us to get is God's steadfast love is able to sustain the brother or sister, the weak and feeble Christian who looks at their background and says, I, I, my sin is far too great. His steadfast love is all the more greater. This is not a message where he says, okay, I brought you out. I rescued you. I gave you a fresh start. Don't mess it up. No, it's a message where he says, I know you sinfully mess it up regularly. And my steadfast love is still with you. Do you see the difference in these messages? And do you see the manner by which this is how we live and survive as followers of Christ? We don't survive as ones who are perfect, as ones who have it all figured out. We survive as ones who are sobered under the Word of God and its authority over us, but who, who have no choice but to cling ever so closely to the steadfast love of God as the very means by which we live. So do you live by the steadfast love of God? Or do you simply talk of and vaguely hope in the love of God? You will know which one it is by how regularly you recount the great, great, the great depths of His saving work towards you and towards us. 
Is the cross the truth you cling to, or is the cross something that's changed your life? Is the hope of the resurrection something that gets you by, or is it something that is a means by which you recognize you are a new creation? Is he safe? We've seen here, no. But we've seen he's good. And we've seen that for those who belong to Christ, have come to him through his work, his gospel, his cross, he is safe. And he is good. And he beckons us take refuge in his steadfast love. To board the vehicle of his grace as we drive those elevated, perfectly paved highways towards that city of his glory. And to trust that he will enact judgment and justice and the very wrath of God in a manner where one ounce of it will not be unjustly delivered. To take hope that as we see injustice and evil in the world around us, and we feel so powerless, that our King Jesus, as strange as it may be to say, is storing up wrath and will not let any go unpunished. May the steadfast love of God be the refuge of our hearts. May the gospel be the lifeblood by which we live. And may the future glory of King Jesus and that city to which we are going be the focus of our thoughts, our hearts, our prayers, our lives. Let's pray. God, the vast reach of the glory of our King Jesus knows no bounds. Just as your steadfast love and the wonder of the gospel and its power towards us knows no bounds. We don't, dr we don't drink from the living water as if we're trying to get drops of it in the desert. We drink from the living water of King Jesus, knowing that it will never run out. So Lord, help us to trust in this steadfast love. May our hearts be captivated by your steadfast love, and may it prompt and provoke us towards obedient trust in you. In word, in life, in heart, in disposition, in thought, in meditation, in planning of our days, and hoping of our hearts. We pray the steadfast love of God would be our peace, and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.